This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 15, State in which man was created, the faculties of the soul, the image of God, free will, original righteousness. This chapter is thus divided. 1. The necessary rules to be observed in considering the state of man before the fall being laid down. The point first considered is the creation of the body, and the lesson taught by its being formed out of the earth and made alive. Section 1. 2. The immortality of the human soul is proved by various solid arguments. Section 2. 3. The image of God, the strongest proof of the soul's immortality, is considered, and various absurd fancies are refuted. Section 3. 4. Several errors which obscure the light of truth being dissipated follows a philosophical and theological consideration of the faculties of the soul before the fall. Sections 1. A twofold knowledge of God before the fall and after it. The former here considered particular rules or precautions to be observed in this discussion. What we are taught by a body formed and of the dust and tenanted by a spirit. 2. The immortality of the soul proved from first the testimony of conscience, second, the knowledge of God, third, the noble faculties with which it is endued, fourth, its activity and wondrous fancies in sleep, and fifth, innumerable passages of Scripture. Section 3. The image of God, one of the strongest proofs of the immortality of the soul. What meant by this image? The dreams of Osiander concerning the image of God refuted. Whether any difference between image and likeness? Another objection of Osiander refuted. The image of God conspicuous in the whole atom. 4. The image of God is in the soul. Its nature may be learnt from its renewal by Christ. What comprehended under this renewal? What the image of God in man before the fall? In what things it now appears? when and where it will be seen in perfection. Section 1. We have now to speak of the creation of man. Not only because of all the works of God, it is the noblest and most admirable specimen of his justice, wisdom, and goodness. But, as we observed at the outset, we cannot clearly and properly know God unless the knowledge of ourselves be added. This knowledge is twofold relating first to the condition in which we were at first created, and secondly to our condition such as it began to be immediately after Adam's fall. For it would little avail us to know how we were created if we remained ignorant of the corruption and degradation of our nature in consequence of the fall. At present, however, we confine ourselves to a consideration of our nature in its original integrity. And certainly, before we descend to the miserable condition into which man has fallen, it is of importance to consider what he was at first. For there is need of caution, lest we attend only to the natural ills of man, and thereby seem to ascribe them to the author of nature. Impiety deeming it a sufficient defense if it can pretend that everything vicious in it proceeded in some sense from God, and not hesitating when accused to plead against God, and throw the blame of its guilt upon him. 
Those who would be thought to speak more reverently of the deity catch at an excuse for their depravity from nature, not considering that they also, though more obscurely, bring a charge against God, on whom the dishonor would fall if anything vicious were proved to exist in nature. Seeing, therefore, that the flesh is continually on the alert for subterfuges by which it imagines it can remove the blame of its own wickedness from itself to some other quarter, we must diligently guard against this depraved procedure and accordingly treat of the calamity of the human race in such a way as may cut off every evasion and vindicate the justice of God against all who would impugn it. We shall afterwards see in its own place, Book 2, Chapter 1, Section 3, how far mankind now are from the purity originally conferred on Adam. And first, it is to be observed that when he was formed out of the dust of the ground, a curb was laid on his pride, nothing being more absurd than that those should glory in their excellence, who not only dwell in tabernacles of clay, but are themselves in part dust and ashes. But God, having not only deigned to animate a vessel of clay, but to make it the habitation of an immortal spirit, Adam might well glory in the great liberality of his Maker. Section 2. Moreover, there can be no question that man consists of a body and a soul, meaning by soul an immortal though created essence, which is his nobler part. Sometimes he is called a spirit, but though the two terms, while they are used together, differ in their meaning, still when spirit is used by itself, it is equivalent to soul, as when Solomon, speaking of death, says that the spirit returns to God who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12.7. And Christ, in commending his spirit to the Father, and Stephen, his to Christ, simply mean that when the soul is freed from the prison house of the body, God becomes its perpetual keeper. Those who imagine that the soul is called a spirit because it is a breath or energy divinely infused into bodies, but devoid of essence, err too grossly, as is shown both by the nature of the thing and the whole tenor of Scripture. It is true indeed that men cleaving too much to the earth are dull of apprehension, nay, being alienated from the Father of lights, are so immersed in darkness as to imagine that they will not survive the grave. Still the light is not so completely quenched in darkness that all sense of immortality is lost. Conscience, which, distinguishing between good and evil, responds to the judgment of God, is an undoubted sign of an immortal spirit. How could motion devoid of essence penetrate to the judgment seat of God and under a sense of guilt strike itself with terror? The body cannot be affected by any fear of spiritual punishment. This is competent only to the soul, which must therefore be endued with essence. Then the mere knowledge of a god sufficiently proves that souls which rise higher than the world must be immortal, it being impossible that any evanescent vigor could reach the very fountain of life. In fine, while the many noble faculties with which the human mind is endued proclaim that something divine is engraven on it, they are so many evidences of an immortal essence. For such sense as the lower animals possess goes not beyond the body, or at least not beyond the objects actually presented to it. But the swiftness with which the human mind glances from heaven to earth, scans the secrets of nature, and after it has embraced all ages with intellect and memory, digests each in its proper order, and reads the future in the past, clearly demonstrates that there lurks in man a something separated from the body. 
We have intellect by which we are able to conceive of the invisible God and angels, a thing of which body is altogether incapable. We have ideas of rectitude, justice, and honesty, ideas which the bodily senses cannot reach. The seat of these ideas must therefore be a spirit, Nay, sleep itself, which stupefying the man seems even to deprive him of life, is no obscure evidence of immortality, not only suggesting thoughts of things which never existed, but foreboding future events. I briefly touch on topics which even profane writers describe with a more splendid eloquence. For pious readers, a simple reference is sufficient. Were not the soul some kind of essence separated from the body, Scripture would not teach that we dwell in houses of clay, and at death remove from a tabernacle of flesh, that we put off that which is corruptible, in order that at the last day we may finally receive according to the deeds done in the body. These and similar passages which everywhere occur not only clearly distinguish the soul from the body, but by giving it the name of man, intimate that it is his principal part. Again, when Paul exhorts believers to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, he shows that there are two parts in which the taint of sin resides. Peter, also in calling Christ the shepherd and bishop of souls, would have spoken absurdly if there were no souls towards which he might discharge such an office. Nor would there be any ground for what he says concerning the eternal salvation of souls, or for his injunction to purify our souls, or for his assertion that fleshly lusts war against the soul. Neither could the author of the epistle to the Hebrews say that pastors watch as those who must give an account for our souls, if souls were devoid of essence. To the same effect, Paul calls God to witness upon his soul, which could not be brought to trial before God if incapable of suffering punishment. This is still more clearly expressed by our Savior, when he bids us fear him who, after he has killed the body, is able also to cast into hellfire. Again, when the author of the epistle to the Hebrews distinguishes the fathers of our flesh from God, who alone is the father of our spirits, he could not have asserted the essence of the soul in clearer terms. Moreover, did not the soul, when freed from the fetters of the body, continue to exist, our Savior would not have represented the soul of Lazarus, as enjoying blessedness in Abraham's bosom, while, on the contrary, that of Dives was suffering dreadful torments. Paul assures us of the same thing when he says that so long as we are present in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Not to dwell on a matter as to which there is little obscurity, I will only add that Luke mentions among the errors of the Sadducees that they believed neither angel nor spirit. Section 3 a strong proof of this point may be gathered from its being said, the man was created in the image of God. For though the divine glory is displayed in man's outward appearance, it cannot be doubted that the proper seat of the image is in the soul. I deny not, indeed, that external shape, in so far as it distinguishes and separates us from the lower animals, brings us nearer to God. Nor will I vehemently oppose any who may choose to include under the image of God that while the mute creation downward bend, their sight and to their earthly mother tend, man looks aloft and with erected eyes, beholds his own hereditary skies. Only let it be understood that the image of God which is beheld or made conspicuous by these external marks is spiritual. For Osiander, 
whose writings exhibit a perverse ingenuity in futile devices, extending the image of God indiscriminately as well to the body as to the soul, confounds heaven with earth. He says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit placed their image in man, because even though Adam had stood entire, Christ would still have become man. Thus, according to him, the body which was destined for Christ was a model and type of that corporeal figure which was then formed. But where does he find that Christ is an image of the Spirit? I admit, indeed, that in the person of the Mediator, the glory of the whole Godhead is displayed. But how can the eternal Word, who in order precedes the Spirit, be called his image? In short, the distinction between the Son and the Spirit is destroyed when the former is represented as the image of the latter. Moreover, I should like to know in what respect Christ in the flesh, in which he was clothed, resembles the Holy Spirit, and by what marks or lineaments the likeness is expressed. And since the expression, let us make man in our image, is used in the person of the Son also, it follows that he is the image of himself, a thing utterly absurd. Add that, according to the figment of Osiander, Adam was formed after the model or type of the man Christ. Hence Christ, inasmuch as he was to be clothed with flesh, was the idea according to which Adam was formed, whereas the scriptures teach very differently, that he was formed in the image of God. There is more plausibility in the imagination of those who interpret that Adam was created in the image of God, because it was conformable to Christ, who is the only image of God, but not even for this is there any solid foundation. The image and likeness has given rise to no small discussion. Interpreters searching without cause for a difference between the two terms, since likeness is merely added by way of exposition. First, we know that repetitions are common in Hebrew, which often gives two words for one thing. And secondly, there is no ambiguity in the thing itself, man being called the image of God because of his likeness to God. Hence, there is an obvious absurdity in those who indulge in philosophical speculation as to these names, placing the zelum, that is the image, in the substance of the soul, and the demuth, that is the likeness, in its qualities, and so forth. God having determined to create man in his own image, to remove the obscurity which was in this terms adds by a way of explanation in his likeness as if he had said that he would make man in whom he would, as it were, image himself by means of the marks of resemblance impressed upon him. Accordingly, Moses, shortly after repeating the account, puts down the image of God twice, and makes no mention of the likeness. Osiander frivolously objects that it is not a part of the man, or the soul with its faculties, which is called the image of God, but the whole Adam who received his name from the dust out of which he was taken. I call the objection frivolous, as all sound readers will judge. For though the whole man is called mortal, the soul is not therefore liable to death. Nor when he is called a rational animal is reason or intelligence thereby attributed to the body. Hence, although the soul is not the man, there is no absurdity in holding that he is called the image of God in respect of the soul. Though I retain the principle which I lately laid down, that the image of God extends to everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of all other species of animals, accordingly by this term is denoted the integrity with which Adam was endued when his intellect was clear, his affections subordinated to reason, all his senses duly regulated, and when he truly ascribed all his excellence to the admirable gifts of his Maker. 
And though the primary seat of the divine image was in the mind and the heart, or in the soul and its powers, there was no part, even of the body, in which some rays of glory did not shine. It is certain that in every part of the world some lineaments of divine glory are beheld, and hence we may infer that when his image is placed in man, there is a kind of tacit antithesis, as it were, setting man apart from the crowd and exalting him above all the other creatures. But it cannot be denied that the angels also were created in the likeness of God, since, as Christ declares, Matthew 22.30, our highest perfection will consist in being like them. But it is not without good cause that Moses commends the favor of God towards us by giving us this peculiar title, the more especially that he was only comparing man with the visible creation. Section 4 But our definition of the image seems not to be complete until it appears more clearly what the faculties are in which man excels, and in which he is to be regarded as a mirror of the divine glory. This, however, cannot be better known than from the remedy provided for the corruption of nature. It cannot be doubted that when Adam lost his first estate, he became alienated from God. Wherefore, although we grant that the image of God was not utterly effaced and destroyed in him, it was, however, so corrupted that anything which remains is fearful deformity, and therefore our deliverance begins with that renovation which we obtain from Christ, who is therefore called the second Adam because he restores us to true and substantial integrity. For although Paul, contrasting the quickening of the spirit which believers receive from Christ with the living soul which Adam was created, 1 Corinthians 15.45, commends the richer measure of grace bestowed in regeneration. He does not, however, contradict the statement that the end of regeneration is to form us anew in the image of God. Accordingly, he elsewhere shows that the new man is renewed after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3.19. To this corresponds another passage, Put ye on the new man, who after God is created, Ephesians 4.24. We must now see what particulars Paul comprehends under this renovation. In the first place, he mentions knowledge, and in the second, true righteousness and holiness. Hence we infer that at the beginning the image of God was manifested by light of intellect, rectitude of heart, and the soundness of every part. For though I admit that the forms of expression are elliptical, this principle cannot be overthrown, that the leading feature in the renovation of the divine image must also have held the highest place in its creation. To the same effect, Paul elsewhere says, And beholding the glory of Christ with unveiled face, we are transformed into the same image. We now see how Christ is the most perfect image of God, into which we are so renewed as to bear the image of God in knowledge, purity, righteousness, and true holiness. This being established, the imagination of Osiander, as to bodily form, vanishes of its own accord. As to that passage of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.7, in which the man alone, to the express exclusion of the woman, is called the image and glory of God. It is evident from the context that it merely refers to civil order. I presume it has already been sufficiently proved that the image comprehends everything which has any relation to the spiritual and eternal life. The same thing in different terms is declared by St. John when he says that the light which was from the beginning and the eternal word of God was the light of man. 
John 1.4. His object being to extol the singular grace of God in making man excel the other animals. He at the same time shows how he was formed in the image of God, that he may separate him from the common herd as possessing not ordinary animal existence, but one which combines with it the light of intelligence. Therefore, as the image of God constitutes the entire excellence of human nature, as it shone in Adam before his fall, but was afterwards vitiated and almost destroyed, nothing remaining but a ruin, confused, mutilated, and tainted with impurity. So it is now partly seen in the elect, insofar as they are regenerated by the Spirit. Its full luster, however, will be displayed in heaven. But in order to know the particular properties in which it consists, it will be proper to treat of the faculties of the soul. For there is no solidity in Augustine's speculation, and the soul is a mirror of the Trinity, inasmuch as it comprehends within itself intellect, will, and memory. Nor is there probability in the opinion of those who place likeness to God in the dominion bestowed upon man, as if he only resembled God in this, that he is appointed Lord and Master of all things. The likeness must be within, in himself. It must be something which is not external to him, but is properly the internal good of the soul. <laughs> 